The Bob Murphy Show, episode 126. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, I am replaying an interview that Keith Knight conducted. Keith earlier had sent me Krugman's book, The Conscience of a Liberal, and we went through that. And then now with Krugman's new book, Interview, or not Interview with a Zombie, uh, Arguing with Zombies, uh, Keith sent me that and wanted to have me on his show to talk about it. And we get into some good stuff here. And particularly if you're lamenting the retirement of the Contra Krugman podcast, I thought, why don't I go ahead and replay this one on the Bob Murphy show? So Keith, his podcast is called Don't Tread on Anyone. And I will, in the show notes page, link to the original interviews also with the one he had for me talking about Krugman's earlier book. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Keith Knight about Paul Krugman's new book on zombies. The libertarian creed rests upon one central axiom that no man or group of men may aggress against the person or property of anyone else. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone. Today, we have Dr. Robert P. Murphy. He is a Christian Austrian economist and libertarian theorist. He's a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. He is the author of the excellent book called Choice, which is so people like me can understand human action. And he is the host of the Bob Murphy Show. Check it out at bobmurphyshow.com. Dr. Murphy, thanks so much for uh, joining me. Glad to do so, Keith. So here is what last time we discussed uh, The Conscience of a Liberal by Paul Krugman. And now we are going to discuss Arguing with Zombies, Paul Krugman's new book. It's basically a collection of essays from Krugman. Uh, Bob, overall, what are your general thoughts on uh, the book? Well, it's... I mean, so the the title, of course, Krugman is referring to the fact that, oh, gee, we keep killing these ideas and they keep coming back. So that's that's what he means, arguing with zombies. So it's, there's some meat here. I'll, I'll put it that way. So like these things, um, you know, it, he does get into some issues. So it's, if you like Krugman as, a, as an intellectual foil or whatever, I would say that, you know, he does have some meat in here. I think we're going to get into some of the the issues but again, I mean, it's if you read his columns, you're going to understand where he's coming from. And here he, it's the same, the same stuff. But it, it is, I guess, in contrast to the ones that we did last time, I think here there is some more issues in terms of like the economics and the financial sector and that sort of thing. Sure, sure. So uh, on page nine, he opens up referring to unregulated shadow banking in the year 2008. Continuing on page 91, the bottom line is that policymakers left the financial industry free to innovate, and what it did was to innovate itself and the rest of us into a big, nasty mess. Dr. Krugman, uh, Dr. Krugman, Dr. Murphy, uh, was the 2008 financial crisis the result of a lack of regulation and financial innovation where the market basically dictated to everyone else that we were going to have a recession? 
No, I don't think so. And there's a couple lines of evidence. So one thing is, you know, just just in general, it's it's odd that you know markets tend to work in most areas. You know, it's not like oh, we need to regulate the pizza industry because otherwise they would just make so many pizzas that the price would crash and they'd all go out of business. And you know, then Pizza Hut needs a bailout every five years. Like that, just you know, that would be a weird story to tell. And so yet that's the story they tell when it comes to the financial sector that people with billions of dollars of their own money, in many cases, on the line you know, just get swept up with greed and, and hysteria and whatever. And then they make these really foolish decisions that any any idiot could have seen. So prima facie, that's an odd story to tell, but yet there are some elements of truth to it. So I think what happened is that the Fed, you know, inflated an asset bubble with easy money policies, low interest rates. And also there were lots of other government bailouts or or guarantees being made, notably the Fannie and Freddie's, everybody knows that sort of thing that allowed expansion of um, loans in the in the housing sector. And the thing is, after the fact, the critics or, or you know, the, the people who think like Krugman, they try to deny this. Oh, that's a right-wing myth that Fannie and Freddie had anything. But the defender, I mean, that was the whole purpose of these programs was to have more loans or, you know, more mortgages be given to borrowers who, who would otherwise not have qualified for a mortgage. You know what I mean? So it's like the whole purpose of this was to make lending easier and to get people into a house that wouldn't have happened in the the pure free market. So again, it's weird that they're trying to deny that that had the, you know, that it it satisfied its very ostensible purpose. More specifically though, like in terms of just the empirical facts, and I'll I'll end here and realize I'm going long. And Tom Woods is the one who really drove this home is that when you say to, you know, the the person leveling this standard claim, because they have to say that, right? In other words, there was this this big boom and then this crash, and then the issue is what caused it. So, of course, Austrians are going to point to the housing bubble and whatever. And I should say, many of us in real time did predict there was going to be a crash, right? So as in the fall of 2007, you know, 11 months before the financial crisis, I was writing for Mises.org saying, is this going to be the worst recession in 25 years? Okay, so again, it's not that we were after the fact just saying, oh, it must have been statism. Like, you know, a lot of us, and certainly like Mark Thornton and Ron Paul were saying stuff, you know, years ahead of time. But so, that, you know, they have to blame deregulation, right? Because what other card can they play? But when you ask specifically, okay, so what regulations were in place like in nineteen in the 1990s? And so that's why we didn't have the housing bubble then, but then we're removed. And that's why we had the housing bubble in the 2000s. The only thing they can even plausibly point to is the deregulation that ironically happened under the Clinton administration with the, so they call it the repeal of Glass-Steagall. It wasn't, it was just a, a tweaking. And as Tom pointed out that, okay, even on its own terms, when you look at that stuff, it's like it allowed for that, like the line between commercial and investment banking, like before it was more strictly segregated and the activities the, that, that segregation was relaxed. You know, that like, that's the only thing they can even point to. But Tom's point was, it wasn't like there were firms that got in trouble with subprime lending or whatever that what they did would have been illegal in 1995, but now because of Graham Rudman or whatever that thing was, now they could do it. You know what I'm saying? So in other words, everything that happened in the 2000s during the housing bubble years would have been allowed with the regulations before the alleged deregulation. So even though, you know, in other words, like again, they have to point to something, so that's what they point to, but the story doesn't really make sense. Sure. And the banks that failed, AIG, an insurance firm, 
Lehman Brothers, an investment bank, Bear Stearns, an investment bank. These were not banks that had commercial and investment intertwined. In fact, you were more likely to stay profitable and stay on your feet without needing a bailout if you were allowed to merge investment and commercial banking. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't even support their thesis because if it was, well, there was all this volatility because they were allowed to merge commercial and investing, then the big banks we should see fail are the investment and commercial banks, or I, I guess you would call it, yeah, investment and uh, commercial banks, just like Bank of America merging with Bayer Stearns or something. We didn't really see that. We saw AIG, Lehman, and all those other places who were more so engaged in mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations. Um, yeah, let me, if, if I could just real quickly. So I don't want to be naive or just make it look like, oh, it was all the fault of, you know, Alan Greenspan. So that's not what I'm saying. There clearly no. were people like the movie, uh, the was it The Big Short? Is that the the one right when I'm thinking like with Christian Bale and all that? Yeah, yeah. So I had, didn't have any a problem with anything in that movie per se. I think they left out some things, but they clearly couldn't have been the whole story because right? they made like the, the scene where, they're, they go to the um, the ratings agency, and I remember if it was if it was Fitch or S and P, or if they even specifically said who it was. You know, in terms of why are you giving such AAA ratings to this stuff when you know it's crap, and you know they made it look like oh well they just have to like this is the nature of the business like who pays them and whatever, and that's fine insofar as it goes. But then the question is okay, but that business model didn't get invented. You know, it's like the rating agencies were inaugurated in two thousand three. Right, that's how they were for decades. And so the question is, what was it specifically that changed? And then even there on its own terms, okay, you would think, all right, so a bunch of rating agencies gave clearly too high ratings to some of these complex derivative products that you know should not have been getting AAA or whatever. Okay, so normally in a market, what would happen is they should have been penalized for that, right? Like the, the people who subscribe to their ratings for information, like bond traders and whatever, they should have fired them or whatever, but they couldn't. And why? Well, because there's government regulations in place saying like, you know, various things like, like bank and in terms of what types of assets they can hold and is it tier one capital and blah, blah. And how do you know what that is? It's not that, oh, your brother-in-law can determine whether your assets are, you know, are tier one or whatever. It's no, you need the ratings agencies to sign off on them. Like, so something's got to be triple A to qualify to satisfy a certain regulation for capital requirements. So the market for those rating agencies is built in by government regulations, right? And so I'm saying like, whatever your explanation for what caused this irrational bubble and why people in the private sector really did make some dumb decisions, the normal market response is, okay, well then they should get punished. And of course they got bailed out. And then again, a lot of these other firms, like these rating agencies and the role they played, the normal discipline didn't happen again, partly because of regulations. Sure. And as you mentioned in your excellent book, Chaos Theory, that um, when criticizing the market, we have to compare it to the state. We can't just say, well, the market's imperfect, therefore it failed. Well, if the state was so in on knowing what was going on, we would have had the Federal Reserve saying, watch out, housing bubble coming, watch out, interest rates are too low, when we didn't have that at all. So for every criticism you can make of the market, it applies tenfold to the state because you can't opt out of funding them. There's no cleansing mechanism yeah. that you have in the market. Yeah, that, that's another thing I should mention too, you know, to this this claim that, oh, it was deregulation that, that spawned the housing. But no, I mean, there were, for example, there was Sarbanes-Oxley, people might remember, 
right? So that was early in the Bush, George, you know, W. Bush administration. There was all these accounting scandals like, you know, Tyco and Enron and stuff. And so they passed the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation, which was, again, oh, we cleaned up Wall Street now. You know, yeah, before there was a lot of shadiness going, but now it's, it's you know, buttoned down and we're going to make sure all the accounting and everything's according to the book. So, you know, how many times is there going to be some crisis or disaster on Wall Street and the government's going to pass a bunch of regulation and give them more power to oversee it? Because we can't trust the free market, clearly. And then it blows up again. Like, how many times do you get to blame the free market when the government keeps telling everybody, okay, this time we got it and, we, and you know, we mean it this time? And they have regulatory capture. You know, who knows the most about regulating an industry? Well, people like Hank Paulson. Well, he was the CEO of Goldman Sachs. So uh, all these people that end up in there are the ones who have total uh, financial interest. Yeah, on that point too, as people might not know, but with Bernie Madoff, it was someone in the private sector who realized, like looking at his prospectus, like, no, this is clearly a Ponzi scheme. This can't be right. And was writing letters to like the SEC and whatever. And they didn't listen to it partly because they were buddies with Bernie Madoff. And I think he was even on like an ethics committee or, you know, that, that might not be the exact, but it was something like that where Madoff was in some advisory role and he was buddies with the people on the inside and, and they were disregarding outside whistleblower. I don't know if whistleblower is the right word, but, you know, private sector people who were pointing out, wait a minute, you got to look into this thing. This, this guy, I'm telling you, he's running a Ponzi scheme. And so, as you say, or another example, just people haven't seen this, go to YouTube and type in Ben Bernanke was wrong. And going back to 2006, when he was still in the Council of Economic Advisors before he was Fed chair, at every stage of the housing bubble and then leading into the financial crisis, he was wrong. Initially, he said there wasn't a housing bubble. Then he said, oh, yeah, there's some froth in the subprime. Then, oh, yeah, there's going to be a recession. It won't be so bad, though. It's, you know, it's every step of the way he was wrong. So as you say, Keith, even if you thought, okay, yeah, the markets fail a lot, and whatever, it's, it's not obvious. So if you appoint these experts to oversee it and regulate it, well, either because of corruption and they get captured or because they're just incompetent, either way, it's not obvious that that fixes things. Absolutely. On page 30, Krugman goes on in arguing with zombies to say there are some places where government excels and which he comes to the conclusion, basically public goods, for example, national defense, air traffic control, also health care. He throws that into a public good as if it's not as non-excludable as national defense. I feel that's a little bit of a bait. But um, so uh, where government excels public goods, Dr. Murphy. Does the existence of public goods and the inability to exclude or include others justify the existence of a state? Well, good question. And I'm, I'm glad you drew that distinction in the beginning that Krugman here is linking thing or classifying things as public goods, which aren't even close to. So, you know, for the layperson, sometimes people could use the, the phrase like public good just might mean something that, oh, it would be good for the public if this thing were funded. Like, so you might say, you know, education or something like that. Whereas the economic definition is, as you alluded to, Keith, is that it's something that's non-rival in consumption and that it's difficult to exclude non-payers from enjoying, right? So something like a, the classic is something like, you know, a, a, a ballistic missile defense system, right? So if you're going to build something that the Soviet back in the day, you know, the Soviet Union launches an incoming ICBM and we have the ability like with a Star Wars laser-based system to knock it down, it's not that, oh, yeah, if the people in Cincinnati fund that thing, they pay for it and then they exclude it from everybody. You know what I mean? Like, I guess you could just look at the trajectory and say if the ICBM is going somewhere else. But or for a given town, if half the people pay and half don't no, if the, if the missile is going to hit and blow up the town, everybody goes down or everyone's spared. 
So that's why things like national defense fall under that rubric of a public good, meaning that you're going to fund it and then everyone enjoys it or not. And it's, you know, it'd be, and the other thing too is like to me to be protected from that missile doesn't take away from you being protected. So in contrast, a private good is something where like if there's a pizza, that's a private good because if I eat one more slice, then that leaves fewer slices for everybody else. Okay. So that's, that's the distinction. So as you said, a lot of the stuff he listed, it's not even a public good. So like air traffic control, how is that a, a public good? You know, if some airline doesn't want to pay, then you just don't give them guidance and they don't know where to fly, right? So you could say that would be chaotic, but I mean, that would be like, you know, by the same token, okay, you know, not, not selling medicine to people if they don't pay could be chaotic too. Cause you know what I mean? So that's, it's just not the criteria. So I don't know why he's, to me, that, that's just unhelpful. He's kind of picking things that people naturally think, oh yeah, the government's got to do that and, and calling it a public good. So, but long way down to, to the meat of it, it's true, it might be more difficult to see how private provision could work when it comes to a public, like another example would be something like a lighthouse. Like that, that's, you know what I mean? Like a classic thing, you know, there's a lighthouse and it's providing a beacon for incoming ships. If you're going to go ahead and build that and it's paid because some of the ships subscribe, you know, ahead of time and they send dues in or something to the lighthouse keeper, he can't like see a ship coming and figure out, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to shield it so that that ship who didn't pay can't, you know, can't see the safe harbor. So th that's kind of the idea. And so that's why typically the people might argue that something like that needs to be privately funded. So Ronald Coase had a good article on that. Incidentally, I should mention, Coase didn't prove it was literally privately funded completely. Like, so there were some state elements or government elements, but in any event, just because it's more difficult to conceive of how private solutions could work, it doesn't mean, therefore, the case is made for state provision. And so, you know, it, it's a pretty basic point, but I think that's that's the essence of it. And then also empirically, it's odd that Krugman's going to point to national defense, like among progressives, like really you want to say that the way we're going to establish how good it is to show that the, the government ought to be doing things is just look at what the U.S. federal government has done with its military over the decades. And aren't you glad, you know, like from the same folks who brought you the, you know, the Vietnam War, here's more people, politicians to help you and to make the world a better place, right? So it's like progressives typically think government officials in their capacity of running U.S. foreign policy are literally war criminals. Like, look at, you know, look at what they said about George W. Bush. So it's weird that Krugman just matter of fact, like, oh yeah, clearly you can't have markets do everything. I mean, otherwise, who would have given us the, the Pentagon and the Department of Defense, right? So I, I think that's, you know, it, it it's not so obvious. Like Krugman, he, he can't just have that be a throwaway line. Like he didn't actually go through and show you know, it just, it's just taken for granted that, oh yeah, we would be conquered next Thursday by Bangladesh, you know, their tanks or something if, if it weren't for the Department of Defense when, no, it's, you'd have to actually make the case and it's given the horrible track record and all the war crimes that the U.S. federal government has committed, it's not obvious, you know, that it would, it would be such a slam dunk for state provision. Yeah, and the uh, argument that Brian Kaplan makes, best thing to ever happen to Russia was the fall of the Red Army. When governments are less um, intrusive into other countries, well, then there's very little risk that other countries want to invade them and counterattack. So it's not even clear that a uh, government-run defense system makes you more safe. 
And it also doesn't justify the government providing one. For example, you might not be safe. Therefore, me and my friends have the right to forcibly take your money every year, cage you if you don't give it to us. And in exchange, we will uh, go around your neighborhood with our AR-15s, making sure everyone's safe. Now, maybe that's helping you. Maybe it's harming you. Either way, I don't have the right to forcefully monopolize the service and force people to fund it when they openly say, uh, Agent Orange, Abu Ghraib, Dresden, Cologne, yeah, I, I think I'm going to opt out of this. Well, you got to let them opt out if they don't want to. I mean, you had Scott Horton on your show talking about how the U.S. was basically funding al-Qaeda in Syria and Libya, while the Pentagon and the CIA were fighting groups that were fighting each other in Syria. So uh, yet yeah, you got to be able to opt out of these things. So what his whole thing is, well, it currently is like this and it's beneficial. Well, that doesn't justify forcing people against mm-hmm. their will. And you don't know what uh, we would have otherwise. Right. And I mean, and that's the problem too with Krugman is, you know, he he is a very clever guy and he knows a lot of the modern economics literature. By the way, he doesn't know like even like the Cambridge Capital Controversy stuff, which was from like the 50s and the 60s. Like when Thomas Piketty's stuff came out and Krugman weighed in on that, it was he was clearly out of his league. And I'm not... I'm not just saying that like as a throwaway line or like, I, you know what I mean? Like it's, I, I gave him a chance to look at it. No, he really doesn't know. And it, even post Keynesians were rolling their eyes at what Piketty and Krugman were saying about that stuff. Like they really just didn't know that like Samuelson basically conceded defeat and you wouldn't know that from reading Piketty and Krugman about it. But where I was going is that is like his political philosophy is extremely weak. Like, like I don't even know if Krugman has developed a theory of, rights or anything, you know, or like the proper role of government. So like you're saying, he just takes it as a given that, oh yeah, if something provides net benefits, of course you would do it. Like when, no, I mean, it's, it, someone might say you don't have the right to do something, even if it, it helps the person. Sure. Um, on page 39, he goes into saying, it is ideologically driven that government is always the problem and market competition is always the solution. Is this a ideological shortcut? Is this a misrepresentation of reality that libertarians or uh, many conservatives like to say, where it does seem like they're always pinning the problem on the state and always saying, well, what we need is more market competition. We need less regulation. How do you respond? Well, and again, just in case people didn't understand the the context of there is, is Krugman's t- saying how people like him who are, you know, technocrats and just looking at it like, hey, we go in with an open mind and we look in some cases we think markets work well. And so yeah, go ahead and let laissez-faire, you know, let the invisible hand do its thing. But in other cases we really like in healthcare or air traffic control, we realize markets don't work so well. And that's why you have to have the heavy hand of government involved. And so we're not ideologues. We go in, we're scientists. Whereas these people on the right, they already know the answer ahead of time. They know it's going to be market's good, government bad. And if there's some problem, they know ahead of time, they have to go find what the government intervention was that caused it, even if, you know, the case is ludicrous that they make. All right. So he's certainly right that that's, that's what, you know, people on the right do. And then we can talk in a minute about, is that, a, is that okay or not? Or does that make them, you know, hacks or something? But I think he's being duplicitous, but when he's denying that people on the left do the opposite. Like the, like the, the mirror image. And like I said, with the, the housing bubble stuff, like that's a clear cut example where they blame deregulation. And so you ask them, okay, well, which, which one specifically? And it's, it's goofy. Like, you know what I mean? Like even on its own term, it doesn't work because again, they have to blame deregulate. It can't just be, yeah, this is a case where 
government intervention failed, but on but on that, we still think government intervention is better than laissez-faire. You know, they could say that and that would be plausible, but that's not what they say. They they have to blame the housing bubble on deregulation and greed. Like they knew that ahead of time, you know what I mean? To, to mirror what he's saying. So then as far as, you know, is it a fair criticism or not? Um, I mean, I don't think it is. So I understand where he's coming from and why that might seem like he's being real even-handed, but there's other areas, you know what I mean? Like, gee, physicists just know without even looking at the experimental design that that particle wasn't accelerated f- faster than the speed of light. Like they just know that ahead. they don't even need to, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's that kind of a thing where if you go in with a strong presumption and then see what you are expecting to, you could call that confirmation bias. But if it's something that's well, you know, well accepted in that field of scientific inquiry, you could just say, yeah, we've seen this a million times before and it's the same pattern playing out here. So I would say it, it's, you know, the the, op, the 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 less sinister interpretation of, of the phenomenon he's put his finger on is just that, that, you know, and also, as you say, too, it is, especially if you couple it with a, a libertarian political philosophy, strictly speaking, you could say, we know ahead of time that it's unjustified morally for the government to do such and such. And given our knowledge of economics and our historical experience, probably it's going to lead to problems as well. But either way, you know, so you technically would want to keep your economics and your political philosophy distinct, which I know at times it gets blurred. So he is right that a lot of times people would go into it from who are coming from the right or libertarianism, let's say, and know what the answer was going to be and just, you know, poke around and say, what's the government intervention that caused this? But even with that preconception or whatever, that doesn't mean the answer is wrong. Right. So I guess you, you have to be honest and say in certain cases, yeah, I'm not really sure why that happened. Right. And, you know, and I think I'd like to think I've done that. And I think you and I are going to hit some points here as we go through this, where I, I'm going to say, yeah, that this, this issue has never sat well with me, but that's what I would say. Yeah. I mean, you know, th- there's definitely the, what's the problem with police? My knee jerk is you can't opt out of funding them. They claim extra rights. No one else has. And they have this monopoly where, uh, you know, if anyone else tries to do it to them, well, you're a terrorist if you try coercing the police, but the police can coerce you. So that is a big problem with police. Granted, that doesn't address why the U.S. monopoly police is so much you know, more brutal than, I don't know, the French monopoly police, the German monopoly police, the Italian mm-hmm. monopoly police. So I get that there's things that are much deeper, but he's making it seem like you know, that uh, Seinfeld episode where Costanza blames everything on Lloyd Braun, yeah. just, irration- just irrationally. This is Lloyd Braun's fault. He acts like we're just picking an organization. But when you don't recognize government, it's just another group, sort of like the Red Cross or Amazon or the Catholic Church. What it does is it coercively invites itself into what would otherwise be a voluntary exchange that if people didn't find satisfactory or they didn't, it didn't uh, pass their cost-benefit analysis, they could opt out of. That's why we're constantly seeing so much of this. So when he just says, why are you always blaming this group? It's the same thing Richard Wolff did after debating Gene Epstein. He never got that. The reason we criticize this group is not because we pick on it and we just like to bully it. It has a unique uh, institutional aspect that it claims rights no one else has, as Barack Obama correctly said, what makes the state unique is it has a monopoly on violence. 
Right. And that's a good point. And also too, like it's this principle, like you know, I mentioned physicists and, you know, if you believe in relativity, you know, that you go with a strong presumption if someone thinks it was violated, they would say no, it would take a lot to convince them. Likewise too, like, I don't know, teachers or something. If, if somebody was like, no, I really think corporal punishment is a great teaching tool. And it, I think a lot of teachers now, like they would know ahead of time. No, it isn't. You know what I mean? And like, and they wouldn't, so they would go in and look at the research and try, and try to find holes in the, in the experimental design. But I mean, they would quote no ahead of time. No, it's not going to be that I'm going to say, oh, I should start, you know, smacking my kid, the kids in my class around to get them to learn their times tables. Like that's this, they would know ahead of time. So, and that's not just a frivolous analogy. Like, like you're saying, that's, that is the thing that, that Krugman thinks like, oh, you're just being moralizing or whatever. But no, that, I mean, that is relevant. It's not merely, Krugman wants to make it sound like it's just a difference over should Amazon, you know, price their products separately? Or if you buy two things together, should it be a different bundle? You know, like that's the thing we're arguing over and it's just a technical detail. Whereas, no, you're right. This group that quote, you know, we, we, we focus our ire on, as you say, like they're, they're going around taking money at gunpoint from people and have committed mass murder. You know what I mean? So again, it's not, <laughs> it's not like this is a, a group that we're unfairly maligning. Alrighty, on page 96, he gives a five-point summary of what Keynesian economics is. He says, this is the brief case for the layman. I'm going to give one point at a time, and I'd like you to respond. Number one, the economy is not like an individual family that earns a certain amount and spends some other amount with no relationship between the two. My spending is your income, and your spending is my income. If we both slash spending, both our incomes fall. Dr. Murphy, how do you respond to point one? That's that's true as far as it goes. And, you know, there is, so th this is what's called, this leads into the so-called paradox of thrift. And it's an example of what's called the fallacy of composition. So, I mean, it it's worth pointing that out, you know, to someone who's never thought of that before. It's kind of a neat thing. And, you know, oh, okay, yeah, that is true. Like, like the difference between looking from an individual perspective where your income is a fixed thing and then from the economy. But, that's true insofar as it goes, but it doesn't, where Krugman wants to take it doesn't follow. So I guess, you know, as we go through the later points, then I'll, I'll explain why he takes that sort of truism and then goes somewhere with it that he shouldn't. Point number two, we are now in a situation in which many people have cut spending either because they choose to or because their creditors force them to. While relatively few people are willing to spend more, the result is depressed incomes and a depressed economy with millions of willing workers unable to find jobs. How do you respond? Right. So Krugman, he's not asking, how did we get into that situation? And, and also he's not asking, okay, given that we're there, you know, what would the normal market response be? So, you know, historically, there were, you know, there were inflationary booms and then deflationary busts. And that's what would happen. And that's the way equilibrium would be restored is wages would fall, right? So, so yeah, people aren't spending it. So nominal incomes fall. And then what happens? Uh oh, well, okay, then wage rates fall. And then people go back to work. And that's how you get out of the cycle. And there's various people say, oh, that doesn't work nowadays. Well, that's not just a quirk that's because of deliberate, you know, unions and, and government intervention is what's crippled that. So the example I like to use, like from the so-called 1920 and 21 depression, which a lot of people have never even heard of because it was so quick, prices fell like in a, 
in a 12-month period, they fell more rapidly that, there than in any 12-month period during the 1930s. Okay, so again, if people who blame the Great Depression on this pattern of, oh yeah, deflation and people cut spending and it was a downward spiral, that should have happened all the more so in 1920 and 21, and it didn't. And part of the reason was that wage rates fell even faster in 1920 and 21. And they didn't fall, though, in the 30s. And why? Well, among other reasons, Herbert Hoover called in all the business leaders after the stock market crash and urged them and came up with ways to cajole them to not cut wage rates because Hoover had this idea that, oh, what happens in a depression is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and the workers get laid off. They don't have enough money to, to buy back the product and blah, blah, blah. So he thought he was going to nip it in the bud. And so, oh, no, as long as you keep wage rates high, now workers can still go buy the product and so that'll keep up revenue and no, what ended up happening is now as prices fell and wage rates were stuck at the pre-crisis level, labor became artificially more expensive. And then the last thing in the world you want to do when the economy's on the ropes is make workers more expensive. So that's partly why unemployment went up to unprecedented levels was because they didn't let wage rates fall. So again, what Krugman's saying there as, par as a partial truth in this number, like one is a full truth and then number two is a partial truth but he's not explaining how did we get there. And again, when you say, okay, what, why is it that all of a sudden everybody wants to cut spending and creditors are forcing it? Like he, he's just saying, well, let's just take that as a given. Well, why? And if the answer is because of a preceding inflationary boom when they were following Keynesian policies, that's surely relevant to him saying, so the way we get out of this is to what? Do something that's going to put us in the same position five years from now. Yeah, you have an excellent chapter in the politically incorrect guide to the Great Depression, where you talk about uh, the recession of 1920 and how uh, originally it was almost as bad as the fall or the crash in 1929, but it wasn't this Great Depression that lasted, what, like 16 years because there was so little uh, coercive involvement by the state. Krugman goes on to say, uh, things aren't always this way. But when they are, the government is not in competition with the private sector. Government purchases don't use resources that would otherwise be producing private goods. They put unemployment resources to work. Government borrowing doesn't crowd out private borrowing. It puts idle funds to work. As a result, now is a time when the government should be spending more, not less. If we ignore this insight and cut government spending instead, the economy will shrink and unemployment will rise. In fact, even private spending will shrink because of falling incomes. Right. So again, what, what Krugman is doing here is in the context of, I think this was, I don't know the exact year, but this was written presumably like post-2008, you know, during the Obama recovery when right-wing critics were just, in Krugman's mind, offering standard objections to government intervention, like, oh, if the government runs a big budget deficit, that will crowd out private investment and drive up interest rates. And if the Fed, Fed prints too much money, then that will, you know, debase the currency and drive up prices. And so that's, you know, and Krugman's saying, no, that doesn't happen in a liquidity trap. And so here he's, you know, trying to put it in real plain language without using technical terms. So he's saying... Again, he says, things aren't always this way, but when they are, the government is not in competition with the private sector. So again, when are things this way and when aren't they? You know what I mean? Like he, he's just remaining agnostic on that point, but that's critical, right? So, it's, so in other words, his like point one that I said is, yeah, that's a, tr a truism. So in general, why is it like if a family decides they want to save more, that doesn't always lead to a depression, right? 
the normal situation is if a bunch of families decide they want to save more, that frees up extra resources for more investment spending. And so now there's more tools and equipment, you know, capital invested per worker goes up over time and it raises standard of living, right? That's why like if you look at one society that they have a 30% saving rate and another society that has a 1% saving rate, the national income of the first society is going to, other things equal, grow more rapidly. It's not that they're going to be mired in depression forever, right? Even though you would think, well, no, gee, because my spending is your income. So if I if I try to save more, that means income goes down. Like, you know, you get what I'm saying? Like clearly there's some asterisk that needs to be on this analysis. And he had implicitly admits it here in part in this, the one you just read that says things aren't always this way. Okay, so when, when are things not this way? You know, when is it that saving is actually a good thing? You know, so so that's the point. And if, you, if he spelled that out, I'm saying, okay, then you would realize, okay, so it's not obvious. This isn't just some mathematical certainty that if households decide to save more, we have a depression again, absent, you know, offsetting government budget deficits. And so then that's kind of the, the issue. And once you spelled that out, which, you know, we don't need to do right at this moment, but my point's being clearly there's more here than Krugman's letting on. And I'm saying if he filled in the gaps, then it would be more clear why he's hardly made the case for Keynesianism here. And it's the great insight that Hans Hoppe brings to the table when he says, well, what the Keynesian meant, the Keynesians miss is they're constantly saying, well, what we need is more spending that increases your income, which increases my income and our incomes increase. That doesn't address, okay, okay, so the problem with ancient Egypt is there was not enough spending. And today, Bangladesh and Haiti, if only they would spend more, incomes would rise. Well, that doesn't increase people's access to goods and services that make their lives better. So this is really just focusing on a money supply and not actual wealth uh, that comes into society. I mean, it, it, isn't that a big thing they're missing when we're just always, you know, a few trillion dollars away from everyone being as wealthy as we'd like to be? Well, it depends. So it depends. For some Keynesian people, I, yes, that that's that's a perfectly fair thing. Krugman, I guess, could be, you know, nuanced. No, 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 I'm just talking about a liquidity trap. And then once we get to full employment, then all the normal rules apply. Just like when Donald Trump got elected, Krugman had an article saying deficits matter again. Right? Yeah, and so, I, I remember that. Yeah, so I, so I think that's what he would say. So he would say, oh yeah, we're not saying Bangladesh could become, you know, the, the world of the Jetsons if they ran budget deficits. What we're saying though, I think Krugman would say, is that if Bangladesh were stuck in a depression with 15% unemployment, that's what we could fix with running big budget deficits to get them out of their liquidity trap. But you're right that it's like, for example, the Keynesians, or a lot of times it's probably not professional. Like, well, no, it's, but sometimes it is too, where they just use like, you know, the Y equals C plus I plus G plus net exports, you know, that that standard accounting equation and to say during a, a recession, like, oh, see, this is just a matter of accounting. If you increase G on the right-hand side of the equation, then Y goes up on the left. So you're right. If, if that's what they say, end of story, then clearly, you know, that's where Hoppe's critique kicks in because it's like, okay, you didn't give any limitations there. So in general, if we increase G, then Y should go up. So really the answer what they had to say is, oh no, actually at full employment, then what happens is, you know, that equation is still true. You know, the national income accounting is, is correct insofar as it goes, Y equals C plus I plus G plus not X. But what that means when you're at full employment is now the trade-offs do happen. And so when G goes up, that means C or I, or I guess net exports, goes down. 
And so there, the government spending is coming at the expense of private spending and Krugman just saying, oh, but less than... So again, Krugman is trying to use simple tautologies and accounting to make what is actually a debatable economic proposition or claim. Point number four, this view of our problems has made correct predictions over the past four years. This article piece was written in 2013. While alternative views have gotten it all wrong, budget deficits haven't led to soaring interest rates and the Fed's money printing hasn't led to inflation. Austerity policies have greatly deepened economic slumps almost everywhere they have been tried. All right, so a few things there. He says Keynesians have been right in their predictions in the last four years. He says uh, that the Fed's money printing did not lead to inflation and uh, budget deficits haven't led to soaring rates. And where austerity has been tried, it has failed. How do you respond to point number four? Okay, so let me acknowledge, just in case someone hasn't heard me say this, that I was one of the people worried about consumer price inflation because of the Fed's rounds of QE. And so there I would, you know, I, I at the very least jumped the gun in the sense that that stuff didn't happen nearly as quickly or as severely as I thought. And I even famously lost a bet to Brian Kaplan and David Henderson and Brad DeLong and Paul Krugman certainly pounced on that and, you know, publicized the fact. So that is correct. But for then Krugman to then say, oh, and we've been right about everything is goofy. So let me just mention a few things. So number one, Krugman wasn't warning or, or wasn't predicting like one to 2% price inflation. He was warning that there was going to be accelerating disinflation and then outright deflation. But, and he's talking about price, you know, consumer prices. And he was pointing at Japan where that had happened, you know, during their so-called lost decade. So, the inflation hawks were warning there was going to be large price inflation. Krugman was warning there was going to be deflation. And in reality, there was modest inflation. And Krugman's running victory laps saying, oh, these people were wrong. Therefore, why listen to what they said? When it's like, well, okay, your model was wrong too. And he, by the way, he admitted it. But he, for them, it was, it was like a wonkish, like, oh, isn't this interesting? It could be that, you know, there's a menu cost in businesses. And, you know, I forget exactly what his mechanism was to explain why the standard Keynesian prediction going into the, and where it comes from is like things like the output gap or whatever, right? That the, the, the model he was using was showing when there's significant spare capacity that should put downward pressure on prices and vice versa. And so with Krugman's estimates of how much slack there was in the system, he was worried that prices were going to actually literally start falling and they didn't. And so then he had to come up with after the fact to tweak his model to explain why they were gently rising instead of falling off a cliff so, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not in terms of how what he did to his model. But my point being that, you know, he certainly didn't say, wow, I guess Keynesianism is wrong after all. No. In fact, once he tweaked the model, it reinforced his view that we need government budget deficits. Um, another thing where he's been told with this austerity stuff, with the so-called budget sequester, Krugman was warning and calling that a fiscal doomsday device. All right. And so he was warning that, oh my gosh, these crazy Republicans, if they get their way, and we tighten, you know, we cut spending in the midst of a weak economy or weak recovery, it's going to lead to carnage. And that didn't happen. And Krugman, to his shame, he was, he was early in the year when he thought it was going to work. And he was pointing to market monetarists who were, you know, Krugman said, hey, we got a good test of, can the Fed through its QE, I think it was three at the time, offset 
the budget austerity from these Republicans and Krugman saying, well, so far it doesn't look good when early, the early data of that year seemed to support that the economy was going to be weak. And then later the economy did pretty good. And then so market monetarists like Scott Sumner were quoting Krugman, who earlier in the year said, right now we have a good test of these opposing views. And Krugman laid down the gauntlet. And, and then, and so they were just pointing out, hey, the US economy did pretty good. So I guess that means you guys were wrong. And Krugman got mad and says, oh, you can't just use one country's example. When it was literally the gauntlet Krugman threw down, quoting someone else. So there's things like that where when it looks like it's going to work in his favor, he said, this is a good test of my theory. When it blows up in his face, then he pouts and says, no, it's not a good test. How could you possibly think that was a good test? All right, so there's stuff like that. And then he even tried to spin it as the Obama recovery, or the, sorry, the, the, the magical Obama boom, excuse me, and then say, oh, I thought it was Republicans said Obamacare was going to destroy jobs. Well, how come we have so much job growth then? You know, more than happened under Reagan or whatever. So it's heads, Krugman wins, tails, Republicans lose, that if the economy had crashed, Krugman would have said, see, I told you the austerity was bad since the economy did decently in terms of the official numbers. He said, oh, I thought Obamacare was supposed to be bad. I guess not. So again, Krugman was wrong on many different issues. Last thing I'll mention, Christina Romer and Jared Bernstein the chair and vice chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under Obama, at the beginning of his administration, 2009, they issued a document to show what the so-called Obama stimulus package would do in terms of job creation and whatever. And they, sh and they famously or infamously sh predicted, oh, unemployment, if we do nothing, is going to go up to a certain amount. With the stimulus package, it will be, it'll, you know, peter off and, and, and fall short of that. So, they went ahead and got the stimulus package and unemployment went up higher than they predicted would happen under a do nothing policy. All right. And so it's like, what more would have to happen? And I pointed that out and Krugman literally said, some predictions matter more than others. That's an exact quote. Yeah. And so it's like, well, okay. And in his mind, he had meant something by it, but it's like clearly, okay, yeah, right. When Keynesians make a prediction about the Obama stimulus package, that doesn't work. That doesn't matter. That doesn't count. But when a right winger, says, oh, I think interest rates are going to go up because of QE, or sorry, because of budget deficits, and they don't, then that means your whole model's wrong. Last thing I forgot to mention, the bet that I lost where Krugman was saying I needed to hang up my you know, keyboard and whatever and, and hang my head and shit, mm -hmm. it's not that I bet a Keynesian. I bet an anarcho-capitalist, namely Brian Kaplan, and another guy, David Henderson, who's at least a minarchist and who was also for austerity. So both the people I bet we're for austerity. So we were all austerians. And yet, because I lost the bet, Krumen's running around saying, ah, the austerian lost. Austerity's run. <laughs> it's like so uh, just one quick thing. You mentioned Obamacare. Did you notice on page, uh, well, I guess, 15, he says, uh, on healthcare, I got a lot of help from Orr Rydent, to whom this book is dedicated, and Jonathan Gruber. So the, pe the person that he thanks at, on page one of his book is the guy who infamously said about Obamacare, it only passed because people were so ignorant. We couldn't have passed this law without basically tricking people, but I'd rather have the law than not have the law. And then he wrote uh, Healthcare for Kids or Obamacare for Kids. I, I just thought that was so mind-blowing that he has no shame. And this was way after that clip came out. That clip came out during the Obama administration. And this book was published and he wrote the acknowledgments in 2019. Just an uh, unbelievable aspect of the whole thing. It, I know it's a cheap shot and it's not about the contents of the book, but that one was just shocking to me. Well, no, but I mean, it, it, to your point though, it is 
like you were saying, like again, Gruber just didn't get caught making, you know, oh gee, I made a Excel a mistake in my Excel spreadsheet or something. You know, I mean, he was admitting on camera, like you said, that oh yeah, we deliberately deceive people because the American people are too stupid to know what's good for you. you know, that, that's I'm paraphrasing, but it's that's the spirit of what he was saying. So it's you know, what would the guy have to do if, if it had been reversed? You know, in other words, Krugman is scandalized that people still cite Steve Moore even though Steve Moore wrote an op-ed where he got a bunch of the numbers wrong. How can these right-wing hacks continue to be employed? It's because the right-wing hate machine and bubble, you know what I mean? And yet Gruber gets caught admitting that, oh yeah, we deliberately changed the way we phrased this in the law because otherwise it wouldn't pass. Like we needed to deceive people about how this Obamacare worked because they're too stupid to know it's good for them. And that doesn't disqualify him. If Gruber's probably like, yeah, tell me about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it As you called it in a podcast of yours, Questions for Progressives, you go, this really is the colonialist mindset that many people have. Look, you guys are just too stupid. I'm sorry. We're going to lie to you and force this upon you. Not because we're evil. You're you're just so dumb that we're going to have to impose mm-hmm. this on you, even if it comes at the cost of deception. And Gruber said it on two occasions, by the way. So we had many times for a moment of clarity. So I do believe it's a legitimate criticism. Point five in the Keynesian summary, finally, yes, the government must pay the bills in the long run, but spending cuts and or tax increases should wait until the economy is no longer depressed and the private sector is willing to spend enough to produce full employment. How do you respond to the final point of the Keynesian summary? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky as, a, as an anarcho-capitalist, so of course, I don't think you know, I, I don't think taxation is justified at all. And then government debt, you know, they ought to repudiate it. And, and then, But given, you know, the framework that he's talking about, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Like if the economy is depressed, then yeah, have tax cuts. And it's okay to run up the debt in the short term, even though, you know, if it's going to say, okay, but in the long run, you know, once revenues recover because of, you know, business, kind of, we're not going to raise spending or, you know, we're going to you know, keep, keep our belt tight and, and pay off the debt, that sort of thing. So I think that's that's fine. And, and also, too, there are empirical measures, and I have this in my book, Contra Krugman, where it's it's not merely that we're making, you know, arguments from first principles or something or doing thought experiments. I mean, you look at real-world data, and there's reports from, who was it from the, was it the ECB? I think it was the ECB that were saying that when you look at austerity policies, there were successful examples of countries that were like in a bad or weak economy and they tightened their belts and they, they paid down their, uh, or they balanced their budgets. And the ones that did okay and they didn't, you know, suffer a big dip were the ones where they mostly balanced the budget through spending cuts. And, and so again, and that totally lines up with free market theory. So, and Krugman tried to go through and poo-poo all those examples. But my, my point being that you don't, it's not merely like, oh, you got to trust me. Let me just tell you the principles of liberty. No, like the actual empirical evidence, like don't trust Krugman when he's telling you what the historical record says. No, it doesn't say that. It's because he has to go through and systematically explain away all the evidence that's counter to his theory. And also I'll just mention, I don't know if the stuff we're going to cover is going to get into it, but there is literally not one example in human history that Krugman can point to where Keynesianism worked. Even World War II, people might say, no, but he often says World War II guys have the depression. He says that, right. But if you go and measure like the multipliers and such, they're not, they're not high. Like Robert Barrow famously did a study where the Keynesian multipliers weren't high 
during the war years. And Krugman had to explain that away and say, oh, duh, there was you know rationing in effect. Like consumers weren't allowed to go buy nylon stockings and stuff. So that's why. So, okay, he can explain it. But the point being, there is literally not a single example. And who do we have to confirm that is Paul Krugman. Back in the 1990s, he wrote an essay on Japan when Japan was engaging in large-scale deficit spending. And at that point, Krugman wasn't a big fan of deficit spending. And he was saying, there's not an example in history of this working. And so, you know, there you go. And yet he's the one claiming he's empirical and we're ideologues. Sure. Uh, Going on to page 132, he says, the birth of economics as a discipline is usually credited to Adam Smith, who published The Wealth of Nations in 1776. Over the next 160 years, an extensive body of economic theory was developed whose central message was trust the market. Yes, economists admitted that there were cases in which markets might fail, of which the most important was the case of externalities, costs that people imposed on others without paying the price, like traffic, congestion, or pollution. Does the existence of externalities justify a state? No, and it's funny because he's going on you know, Krubin wants to make a case even stronger than that. So I, for one thing, you know, that that's not where economics started. And it's, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. People think that, but um, no. So like I say, it's, even though Krugman is getting ready to roll his eyes at these neoclassical, econ- like in other words, Krugman's saying there in the context, yeah, sure. These neoclassicals, they make exceptions for externalities. But what I'm saying is these morons believe the market everywhere else and they're wrong to do so. And so <laughs> You're you're taking it the other way and say, no, no, they're 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 wrong to even make an exception for externalities. So yeah, and, and here I can be brief. It's the same thing I I would have said for the public goods issue that even though it's harder to see, and you could I'm even okay if one wants to say the market doesn't work as well in cases where there's a positive or negative externality, still it doesn't follow that therefore the government will fix it or you know will, will provide a, a superior solution. Um, so for example, you know, something like a positive external people are like, Oh, it's good. If, if, if people, if people scrub it, like see, let's say CO2 is a negative externality, CO2 emission. Okay. And so let's say, you know, you, someone stipulates the case and we can quibble over, you know, is it going to be catastrophic? But okay. But let's say you admit, yeah, sure. Other things equal right now, too much CO2 is being emitted and that's negative externality. It doesn't follow that governments around the world ought to do something. Cause number one, in practice, they don't do enough. Like even according to the, you know, climate catastrophe models, it's not close to being close, you know, the, the Paris Agreement, whatever, is nowhere close to limiting warming to 2C, let alone 1.5C, according to their own models. So it's spinning their wheels and doing all sorts of other stuff that's not solving the problem. Um, but even beyond that, okay, so a bunch of philanthropists can get together and, you know, fund private alternative or private solutions. And in fact, in the real world, that is what's happening. There are lots of private ventures, people looking into things like uh, carbon capture technology or, you know, can we spread, you know, seed the ocean to have certain algae grow or whatever that absorb more CO2 or, you know, looking at ways you can pump sulfur dioxide, I think, into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight, like to mimic what happens when a volcano erupts. You know, all kinds of stuff that they do like that where private firms or, or, you know, institutions, philanthropic orders are looking at that stuff, just like, you know, the Gates, I know people, some libertarians don't like Bill Gates. I'm not endorsing what they do, but I mean, there are people funding malaria nets and stuff like that, not because it's profitable, but just because, well, that's something we can do. So again, the, the mere fact 
that voluntary marketplace activities sometimes might shower negative or positive things on third parties, that per se does not justify the creation or expansion of power for this monopoly group that historically has been a bunch of mass murderers. Like that's, you can see how there's kind of a leap there in that argument. And again, he's saying trust the market as if that was, I, I mean, I get you're trying to simplify the opposition. He's not going to, you know, write a treatise on it. But even that, that really isn't fair, the, what differentiates the market from the state. So the analogy that I would use is um, everyone believes you should just trust marriage and every marriage will be perfect so long as the state's not involved. No, I don't believe that at all. There are tons of marriages that are unfortunately terrible. There's like a 50% divorce rate. All I'm saying is the existence of bad marriages does not justify a third party coercively intervening and saying, all right, we're going to prearrange marriages under the guise of you know these five criteria. For the same reason, you don't have the right to forcibly stop people from engaging in commercial activities or activities in their social sphere. Um, an example of positive externalities, uh, I would say, is like the malls that have been built around my house. Or there's a really nice Mormon church that was built not too far away from me that makes this place gorgeous. It used to be I'm in uh, Chandler, Arizona, next to Gilbert. So it used to be like, you know, my house, a fence and, you know, one of those tumbleweeds. And now there's all these businesses that have arisen. But the existence of positive externalities doesn't justify them having the right to tax me or regulate my interactions. And then, um, of course, as you do in chaos theory, you say, does this does this criticism? The market causes externalities. Does it apply to government? Because if an externality is when A and B get together and C is negatively affected, <laughs> what is the government besides a negative externality? Uh, Congress get together and coerce millions of strangers? That is the biggest externality. People didn't collectively agree there was going to be a civil war that killed 600,000 Americans. People didn't collectively agree on you know, invading Niger or Yemen or Somalia or selling hundreds of billions to the Saudis who are committing mass murder in Yemen. Government is the, the very thing he's afraid might happen in the market. He openly advocates with the state. Any final thoughts on externalities? No, I, th I think you did a, a, good, a good job there. And, and like I say, it's, there are market mechanisms that could try to account for this stuff too. Like, right, you can... For example, if certain expenditures like, you know, benefit the community, like raise property values or something, you could imagine a firm that would buy call options, like for the, you know, for real estate investment trust or something spread throughout this geographical area. And so then they could capture like the change in market valuation of the, of the real estate. You know, I'm just saying there's, there's lots of things when you allow markets to innovate. So in other words, if Paul Krugman can look at the situation and realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, standard one-off market transactions aren't capturing some of the stuff that's going on here. Well, business people can see that too. And it's, you know, it really with people just all sitting around thinking about it, there's the only solution is we got to give this monopoly organization a bunch of guns to then take money from us to spend it wisely. You know, that's. Yeah. Um, on uh, page 137. Okay. So this is the second nail in the uh, free market coffin that uh, Krugman likes to give us. This is called the babysitting co-op uh, story. I guess this is a real story from uh, a 1977 article in the Journal of Money and Credit. 
This was an association of about 150 young couples who agreed to help one another by babysitting for one another's children when the parents went out at night to ensure every couple did its fair share of babysitting. The co-op introduced a form of script, coupons, made of heavy pieces of paper, money, each entitling the bearer to one half hour of sitting time. Initially, members received 20 coupons on joining and were required to return the same amount on departing the group. Unfortunately, it turned out the co-op's members on average wanted to hold a reserve of more than 20 coupons, perhaps in case they should want to go out several times in a row. As a result, relatively few people wanted to spend their script and go out, while many wanted to babysit so they could sit and add it to their hoard. But since babysitting opportunities arise only when someone goes out for the night, this meant that babysitting jobs were hard to find, which made members of the co-op even more reluctant to go out. Babysitting jobs became even scarcer. In short, the co-op fell into recession. This is a problem of inadequate demand. Therefore, to get out of this recession, they printed more script. They printed more money, just as the Fed should do for the economy. How do you respond to that analogy? All right. So a couple things. So first of all, you know, to the extent that it was voluntary and to the extent that people knew ahead of time what the, and I haven't done enough research into the actual, so, so to answer your question, yes, apparently this really was a thing. I vaguely think I saw some free market economist who didn't like Krugman who went and investigated this and said there was more to the story. But unfortunately, I haven't tracked that down and I, I've never been able to find that again. But I, I think, you know, it's possible. In other words, just like I don't trust what Krugman says about Herbert Hoover. It's, it's possible we shouldn't trust what he says about this babysitting co-op. But so if the couples did join that and it was laid out somewhere, like if it was officially spelled out that the co-op wasn't allowed to print more coupons, then I would say that was wrong. You get what I'm saying? Like, like if, if that was a violation of the understanding, then I would, you know, I'm, it's not like a, a war crime, but that that would be a violation, and so I would it would be against that. But to the extent that you know it was understood or not spelled out and left open ended, that oh yeah, like you know, we who are organizing this thing, we can print more coupons if we feel the need to, and especially if all the participants were okay with it because they saw the rut they had gotten into, I wouldn't have had a problem with that. What's interesting though is, that, and I'm just thinking of this on the fly. It's funny. I wonder if that would have caused some sort of boom bust cycle. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like Krugman's just again narrowly looking. Oh, we got a problem right here. Let's do this. That solves the problem today. Case closed. We walk away. Well, what happened later? Now that there's more coupons going around than there should have been. You get what I'm saying? Like it's not clear. Like did the co-op have to, uh, you know, suck some of those like like sterilize some of those babysitting coupons? Like we don't know. But again, like the way it was originally you know, he set it out that couples join, I think they got what, like 20 coupons. And then if they left, they had to return 20. And so it's not clear, like as if couples were leaving, did that mean now all of a sudden there was massive inflation, you know, and, and I don't know, but in any event, so that would be something interesting to look at. But in any event, that's hardly the analogous thing to what the Federal Reserve is right now, you know, for the whole history of how is it that we're using this stuff. And in any event, it's, um, Krugman, all you know, he hints at this. Another solution, besides having to print more coupons, would have just been that they allowed prices to adjust, and you know, so so that could have solved it as well. And so, in the real world, say, okay, when people do have contracts made, and there is 
you know, there, there are congressional mandates and things on what the Fed's allowed to do. It's, you know, just, just when they go and print more money, that's clearly redistributing purchasing power from the people who didn't get the new money to those who did get it. And so again, it's, you know, to just say, oh, but it's good for the economy. Well, that's a pretty antiseptic phrase that hides a lot. Just like, okay, well, if they want to print more $100 bills and give them to me, and that's the way we're going to get out of this liquidity trap, you know, that, I don't mind doing that. And I, and I think people would say, well, that's not fair. Okay, so then why is it fair what they actually do? You know what I mean? Like I'm saying, the, the distributional consequences, Krugman doesn't even talk about that instead. And just like with this babysitting co-op thing, he doesn't really get into it, but if they did print up a bunch of new tickets and just gave it to the guy running the co-op or gave it to his you know, sister or something, that might be corrupt. You know, I, I could see the couples getting upset as opposed to like an even distribution of coupons among all the existing, you know, or maybe in proportion to how many coupons do you have already. So you do start to see the issues. And the only thing that would justify it with the co-op thing is to the extent that it was a voluntary and that, you know, like you say, okay, they, they knew ahead of time that this sort of thing might happen. But you, you could see a lot of those effects. And so with the Fed, clearly that stuff isn't voluntary. And there's clearly, if again, if, if QE4 was just, they print a trillion dollars and give it to five guys who are buddies with Jay Powell, then and some might argue that this is basically what happened in 2020. You know, presumably people would be upset about that and Krugman could understand why. And so again, it's, it's this very flippant thing. And in any event, just to reiterate, the market mechanism that could solve that is prices adjust. And Krugman just taking it for granted that, oh yeah, prices are sticky. And I've pointed out before, well, they didn't used to be sticky. And what, why is it? It's partly because of government intervention. And he's also just saying it, it's good to consume. There's no, let's postpone consumption and maybe babysitting will be more valuable in the future. What, no one was going to ever get a babysitter because they only had 20 coupons at that moment. Also, doesn't this almost justify the existence of a private money supply? He wasn't saying bad things were happening and then the mayor of the town intervened and then there was babysitting again. Doesn't this actually in, inadvertently justify, mm. justify a private money supply in the sense of what's the right amount of money? Well, I don't know and you don't know. So the best thing to do would be to have a voluntary system where no group had any more rights than anyone else. There wasn't some group in 1913 or in 1910 on Jekyll Island with Frank Vanderlip saying, hey, let's coercively monopolize the country's currency. Don't you see him accidentally uh, advocating libertarianism here? Or am I totally off? No, that for real. Like I've heard lots of people comment on Krugman's babysitting co-op and I've never heard someone make that point. That's a great point, Keith. And I'll, I'm going to try to remember to cite you if I use that in the future. But I, from now on, I'm being serious. Whenever someone brings that up, I'm going to have that be one of the first things I say is that, yeah, because you're right, like it would be one thing if Krugman pointed to, you know, ah, Sweden in 1964 did such and such and that proved, you know, but you're right, he's pointing to a voluntary thing. And again, why are we okay morally with this thing is because you'd realize, well, yeah, you could opt out of it and this was a von, nobody put a gun to their head and said, you got to use these. There was certainly no thing where people were originally using dollars for babysitting co-op and then FDR came along and said, you know what, turn over your dollars and we're going to give you these coupons. Or a better analogy if people opted in because originally you could always turn the coupons back for a given dollar amount and then the runners of the co-op debased it and, and changed what, what you could get redeem it for, like that would be theft or for fraud or something, you know, I mean, it'd be one of the two. And so it's interesting. Yeah. Like you say that this isn't really an alley in any event, this shows the benefits of a quote, elastic private, privately issued currency, if anything. 
And what you mentioned earlier about Paul Krugman being wrong about Herbert Hoover, Dr. Murphy and I got into this last time when we discussed The Conscience of a Liberal by Paul Krugman, his earlier book. I don't want to get into it, but he wrote a very misleading article called 50 Herbert Hoovers. And Dr. Murphy and I analyzed that in our previous conversation. It's so exhausting. I can't go over it. again. <laughs> I can't go over it again. Um, OK, so then we go on to page 235. I'm sorry, page 217, where he says, here is the ultimate zombie. If I take this one down, I have taken down the right wing, small government, anti-government ideology. Tax cuts create wealth. This is a lie. He says, for example, in the 1950s, taxes were 90 percent. Now, you and I had a brief exchange about this. I think that that's a lie. But you could argue that it's misleading. Here's the reality. There is a common misconception that high income Americans are not paying as much taxes compared to what they used to, proponents of this view often point to the 1950s when the top federal income tax rate was 91% for most of the decade. However, despite these high marginal tax rates, the top 1% of taxpayers in the 1950s paid only about 42% of their income in taxes. As a result, the high tax burden on high income households today is only slightly lower than it was on these that these households faced in the 1950s. The data shows that between 1950 and 1959, the top 1% of taxpayers paid an average of 42% of their income in federal, state, and local taxes. Since then, the average effective tax rate on the top 1% has declined slightly. In 2014, the top 1% of taxpayers paid an average tax of 36.4%. And before that, under Bush, it was 39% on the top 1%. Now, this is not according to Alex Jones and Tom Woods. This is actually according to Thomas Piketty, the research of the guy who Krugman loves, who wrote the famous book Capital uh, to, I guess, channel Karl Marx. Um, but this is a leftist economist who says, well, we've actually done the numbers and not just looked at what the technical rate was and found that, yeah, the average rate was a little bit higher than it is today. So how do you address Tax cuts don't create wealth. They're just there to make the rich richer. Okay, so a lot going on here. And, and this was the point that I was alluding to earlier, Keith, when I was saying, you know, when there is an issue where the empirical stuff doesn't line up with what I would have thought going into it, you know, I'll admit, you know, it doesn't change my my philosophical or ethical view on it. But so this, this is one that it's, if you, ahead of time, you know, seeing what marginal, income, you know, the top marginal income tax rate schedule was, I would have thought that that would be bad for the economy in the 1950s. So it's, again, just for people at home to understand the difference between effective rates and marginal rates, the, the marginal, you know, means the the top marginal rate saying, you know, money, like, let's say it goes up to the tax brackets from, like, I'm making this up, let's say it's from zero to hundred percent, you or zero to hundred thousand dollars, you pay 10%. And then anything above a hundred thousand, you pay 50%. So there, you know, for people who who just make a little bit over 100,000, their average tax rate would be close to 10%. Okay? But still, there would be a large disincentive effect like for someone who's really productive, he might not work in the big city, you know, and commute 3 hours each day and whatever to earn $200,000. Instead, he might live in the suburbs and and commute, you know, to a, a suburban job where he only makes 120,000. Because he knows if I go to the city, most of, you know, or, or half of that boost in salary is just going to be keep taken by the IRS. 
So that's the sense in which even though effective tax rates were lower, I would have thought those those top marginal rates at such punitive levels would have had a bigger deal. So to me, it's more, were there exemptions? Like in other words, could people have you know invested like in certain municipal bonds and things like that where th- those tax rates didn't apply? And I, I've seen analyses to say that it is. But again, so this is something where I'm admitting I am surprised that they didn't have such a, didn't have a, a stronger effect. Having said all that though, there's plenty of examples where you can see the clear cut implications of changes in tax rates for especially like something like capital gains taxes during the Reagan years, there was, you know, there was a period where they brought it down and you can totally see when they change the capital gains tax rate and how much revenue gets reported and what, you know, cause there it's, it's the thing where it doesn't kick in unless you realize it. So people who had profits, you know, they could, they could, they could realize it and then lock in the capital gain when the rate changed. So you can see tons of stuff like that. Um, I, I did a study once for um, the Pacific Research Institute on California. And this was research that I had seen um, when I worked with Arthur Laffer. And there you can clearly see if you look at like net migration into and out of the state of California, when they tweak their top tax or just the state level, you can totally see changes in the flow, which you might've thought, oh, who's going to change what state they live in based on taxes? Well, no, apparently people do, and you can see it in the data. And just even anecdotally, there's plenty of people who want to, you know, who work in high tax rate places. And after a while, either because they're going to retire or because they're, they're sick of it, they move to states that don't have an income tax. You know, so that, I mean, that that's that's a real thing. People do make decisions based on that and you can see it in the data. Last thing I'll say on this stuff a lot of progressive economists are real big fans of a carbon tax. And why is that? They say, oh, because if you put a tax on carbon emissions, people change their behavior sometimes drastically. And so it's like, okay, well, how come taxes really affect behavior there, but they don't affect behavior when it comes to, you know, rich people or something? You know, like it's, it's so I, I think it's a lot of times a progressive narrative, it doesn't really work where it's contradictory that they think taxes really affect behavior in some areas, but in other areas, they think it's just a right-wing myth. Going on to page 235, he asked the question, why not tax 100%? So he's talking about the abolition of private property here. Why not tax 100%? Here's his reasoning. The libertarian says, well, taxation implies initiating aggression against peaceful people. It's unjustified at 1%. At 100%, it's even way more unjustified. Then you can get into the economics of, well, people choose to buy something that increases their satisfaction more than if someone coercively takes their money and spends it on their behalf. Here is Krugman's justification for why we shouldn't tax 100%. What this implies for economic policy is that We shouldn't care what a policy does to the incomes of the very rich. A policy that makes the rich a little bit poor will affect only a handful of people and will barely affect their life satisfaction since they will still be able to buy whatever they want. So why not tax them 100%? The answer is that this would eliminate any incentive to do whatever it is they do to earn that much money, which would hurt the economy. In other words, tax policy toward the rich should have nothing to do with the interest of the rich per se but should only be concerned with how incentives affect, change the behavior of the rich and how this affects the rest of the population going on to say, um, or to put it a little more succinctly, when taxing the rich, all we should care about is how much revenue we raise. The optimal tax rate on people with very high incomes is 
the rate that raises the maximum possible revenue. Is it me or is that just pure evil? Is that just saying, look, the, this group of people lives to serve us. I mean, how is that? I'm very rich compared to someone in Haiti, but they don't have the right to just treat me like a piece of property. This is the ultimate vilification of we're only going to have an income tax for the first world war and it's only going to affect the rich. You know, once you start vilifying and demonizing one group, it always it, it always continues and goes to other groups. And this is his justification against uh, 100% taxation theft by the state. How do you respond? Yeah, so it's you're you're right. This is shocking when Krugman published this. You're right. I mean, he's treating rich people as cattle and just you know saying, oh, you 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 know you don't want to work them too hard because then you don't bring as big a crop to market or you know you don't bring as much tonnage to market kind of thing. Yeah, so it, it, it was shocking when I was just so people understand what his argument is. He's saying rich people, you know, once you have a billion dollars, whether you have an extra hundred million or not, doesn't make you happier, right? It, as opposed to like a poor person to have an extra thousand dollars really can make a difference subjectively to that person. So that's the sense in which he would say, oh, no, it's not that I'm treating them as non people. I'm saying anybody who, if you got to that level of wealth, your utility function, blah, 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 blah. So, so that's where he's coming from. So he's saying we don't need to worry about hurting them, like making them worse off by taking money away. But it is true to the extent they don't work as hard, then that might look. So um, one thing is to say, well, wait a minute. If it's if the incentives do matter, then clearly they something's going on there. You, you know what I'm saying? Like in other words, you're saying it doesn't affect them any, but then why are they working not as much if, you know, if you're taking the money away from them? So clearly they do think it matters. Otherwise they wouldn't have that incentive effect. Um, and it's, there's something screwy about that analysis. And I I was trying to go and put my finger on exactly what it was and whether Krugman invented it. Because like, he cites some other research, you know, to, to be involved there. And it's, to answer your question, no, it, they, that can't be right, the, the optimal amount. And, and for one thing is the, the multiple or the estimates in terms of the sensitivity, I think, are incredibly high. Right, in, in terms of him saying, here's what the optimal tax rate is that would maximize revenue. So, I mean, again, that's sort of a, a mechanical point that, that misses the morality. I think the morality is the more important thing. But yeah, w when he first published that, like a bunch of us were scratching our heads saying, like, that's that's horrifying morally speaking, but also like that that sounds like terrible economics. Like that, that can't be correct. I mean, there, for one thing, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, deadweight loss and, and stuff like that too, as well, that he's just totally not grappling with there. And so again, it's, he, Krugman there is just paraphrasing analyses from other economists. And I do think they're leaving out some basic points and they're just focusing on a few things um, in that, in that approach. Yeah. And he's also not saying, well, what would be more beneficial if you're just a strict utilitarian, if the rich, whoever they are in this case, saved that money and invested it in the private sector, or it just sat in their bank accounts and banks used it to give me money to get a house or a mm -hmm. car or my own business. So it's totally fraudulent. Oh, by, by the way, sorry, I just, I remembered, I was losing it for a second. I couldn't remember the example. So I remember what it was they left out. So partly what, what Krugman's getting at there is he's saying like, what's the benefit of, of rich people working? Like, how does that benefit the rest of us? Like, so what do we care if there's a disincentive effect? And he says, because to a first approximation, if a rich person produces a billion dollars worth of output or, and then gets compensated, then, oh, according to you right-wingers, he should get compensated a billion dollars, right? Like you get paid your marginal product, you know, in terms of 
micro one-on-one. And so he's saying to the extent that these right-wingers believe in their, you know, rosy version of free market capitalism, rich people take out of the market exactly what they put in. So therefore, from everyone else's perspective, it's a wash. And so that's the point that I'm saying is terrible economics. You know, you, you could prove, you could just prove anything with that. You know, you could say, oh, we, we pay on the margin for what barrels of oil are worth. So therefore, if imports go to, you know, are a, a million barrels a day or one barrel a day, you know, we, we have to pay to the Middle East exactly what they send us, you know, and, and, and that doesn't follow, right? You know, you get what I'm saying? So, or in a, in a factory, even let's assume competitive markets and no externalities and blah, blah, blah. If all of a sudden 90% of the workers just called in sick, it's not that the it's not that the, oh, the the manager of the factory would say, oh, it's a wash, because yeah, now the workers haven't shown up, but at least now we can cut the wage bill this month, and it's just like, what you know what I'm saying? Like so, in general, no, that that's that's like the is marginal versus infra marginal, and he's totally missing that with with that analysis. So it wasn't in the literal quote that you read, but that's part of the analysis that he had to use was to show if rich people withhold their labor power on the margin because of a disincentive effect. We don't need to worry about that in the private sector sphere. Again, the only thing that it hurts us is because now we can't tax that activity. So tax revenues are lower. And so again, that's just a, that's a weird, again, the reductio ad absurdum is he's saying absent tax considerations. If 90% of the people just didn't go to work tomorrow, it shouldn't make like the, like the lockdown should have no effect on anybody else. You know what I mean? Who's, who's not, who's not affected like the essential work. Yeah. That's the way of putting it. The essential workers should have been completely unaffected by the lockdown, according to Krugman's logic, because everybody else just, you know, and that's obviously not the case. Sure. Well, Dr. Murphy, thank you for going over with me. Uh, the, the other part of the book was about inequality. And fortunately, we went over that in our conscience of a liberal discussion. So please check that out again. Uh, check out uh, BobMurphyShow.com for his excellent podcast. He has questions for progressives, questions for conservatives. Those are probably my two favorite podcasts and the must read book of his. I was trying to pick one. If I had to pick one, Chaos Theory is great. It's a close second, but uh, the politically incorrect guide to World War II and the Great Depression was just terrific. Dr. Murphy, thanks so much for your work and thanks for joining me on uh, Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. Thanks so much for having me, Keith. It was a great discussion. Take care. Bye. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.